Hi, I'm Shakira Ray, and welcome to Seeking Wisdom, where I host in-depth conversations about life and legacy with some amazing people. My guest today is one of my favorite teachers, Bill Madigan. Mr. Madigan was my high school avid teacher and a father figure at a time in my life when I really needed one, even walking me down the aisle when I got married 23 years ago. His approach to teaching changed not only my life, but the lives of thousands of students he taught and teachers he mentored. Here's our conversation. I always found it interesting that you were a student at Mount Miguel before teaching there. What was it like there when you were a student? Remember is the teachers really didn't care about you very much. I had um, like literally one or two teachers show any interest. Um, mostly my art teacher because he thought I was talented and all that. Um, my English teachers almost to a person didn't seem to, they were just going through the motions in my opinion. Um, one of the reasons I think I chose to teach differently because this stuff was so boring and they didn't seem to care that I existed. So, and they all didn't know how to teach. They, back then you just, you know, you're given keys and go talk about what you know and, People don't learn by talking, so unless it's done really right. What kind of student were you? Uh, I got a lot of C's and B's. Um, I think I graduated with like a 3.3 GPA, but I was in what are called applied arts classes, which is kind of like average, average. Um, I didn't really turn on to learning until I was about a senior. And then I really, you know, kind of turned on to learning. I, I think either reading, I read something that made me go, wow, I, I want to know more about this. Uh, also, at that time, I wanted to be a Catholic priest. So I was reading a little more of history and philosophy, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so I started to have my own interest. So I was reading like, advanced placement books on my own, but, um, you know, the school itself wasn't challenging me much because it was boring. What were your plans for after high school? Um, I got very close to going to the seminary and then, you know, I was reading so many of these Catholic mystics and saints and philosophers that made me realize that what I was drawn to as far as God was more of a deep connection to something far greater than myself. And I, I didn't feel like a priest in a parish was the thing. So I went off to a couple of monasteries, uh, Trappist monasteries and Benedictine monasteries across the United States. I went to Colorado and stayed there six months at uh, St. Benedict's Monastery. Not six months, six weeks. And then I went to another monastery in uh, uh, outside Provo, Utah, of all places. Uh, it's no longer there. I visited a while ago on a training. I was doing a, a teacher training there, and uh, I just drove out to see if it was there. And I guess it just they ran out of months, and so they just closed it down. Um and, uh, you know, so for me, I was searching for some kind of deeper connection to God, not something that you do when you go to church. 
While checking out monasteries across the country, he also attended a local community college. I went to Grossmont right away. I even went to Grossmont because I graduated in January because I hated school so much. I wanted to get out of there. I started going to Grossmont, and there I had a, a really thoughtful, caring teacher, Paul Weecroft. He was a philosophy teacher, and he um, um, he basically took me under his wing, and he's kind of like a father figure because my dad never understood my art or my attraction to music because I used to play the guitar a lot and the piano. And um, I remember him saying, you know, like, you know, he'd get drunk and start complaining about all of us. And I'd be sitting outside, uh, you know, and I'd hear him saying that oh, he must be gay. Or, he didn't say gay then either. He said the F word, right? So, um, uh, you know, just not having, for me, role models that are male that, have my sensibilities in art and philosophy and music. And so I've always been fighting that kind of a gender battle, to be honest with you, my whole life. I'm really kind of, uh, I'm appreciative of a lot of the, the, the LGBTQ community has raised a lot of issues that have actually had resonance with me because I wasn't the typical male and the typical male to me back in the early sixties and fifties was a person who doesn't talk, never shows his emotions and, um, uh, has no real interest in art or even, I don't even think he'd use the word beauty to be honest with you. So to me, it was a really stifling kind of, um, I don't know. I felt like I was in prison when I was a kid because everything in me was nothing like what was going on around me of what I'm supposed to be this, you know, Hemingway hero male who doesn't talk and shoots animals and, um, shows no feelings. And, you know, you know, and as I studied psychology and all that to try to liberate myself from that kind of garbage, I found out that, you know, these regular men that are doing the right thing, quote unquote, that are being the stereotypical white male, or blackmail or whatever, holding in their feelings is just destroying them. And it's basically one theory why men die before women is because they never uh, emote and they hold it all in. And it, it's, a, it's a process of hormones and all these other things that it basically eat up your body. Paul Weecroft, he valued art and music. He thought it was uh, powerful. He thought it, it, it revealed, I guess, some real depth you know, and um, um, so I don't know. I, um, I, I obviously I felt like I was given permission by him as a man who happened to not be gay uh, and who, you know, he, he actually built his own house out of Adobe block. So I did the same thing. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had the courage to do it because he did it. And, uh, of course, you know, I did something different. I didn't build a house out of wood. I built it out of, you know, bricks and, um, no one knew anything about it. So I had to kind of figure it out on my own and ask a lot of questions. And, uh, it turned out it really, it really was inspiring to my father because he helped me build it, um, because it was so different. And I think that kind of is, you know, one of the things about me 
I was the fourth son. And when you're the fourth or fifth, you, you kind of, you try to try to stand out. Your, your personality starts to be more noisy. Um, and so I think that's what made me, I think one, I'm very different. I just think differently than many others. And I, uh, I also like to try things that are unique because I just found, I think I found my childhood so horrendously boring and repetitive. Uh, the culture of the time is just, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I, I just rebelled against it and I continue to do the same, you know. When did you decide to become a teacher? So I was studying art because I thought that's what I was supposed to do because I was good at it. And I liked music, so I was studying that too. But um, a friend of mine who also was an art student called me one day. I was like 22 years old. And he goes, oh, my God, what are you going to do for your life? you got to make up your mind now. And it freaked me out, and I, I believed him. And I, I, I was probably already feeling all kinds of anxiety, not knowing what the heck I was doing. So I still got, I'll be, I, you know, everybody probably just as a, either join the military or become a teacher, right? So I decided to become an English teacher. And, of course, I hated English with a passion because, again, like I said, my teachers were uh, pretty boring people and um, to me and didn't care for me. didn't know who I was even. So I just enrolled in the education department and all that. And the best thing about it was I really wasn't cut out to be a teacher by nature like some people are. Like, I think people are cut out to be teachers are cut out by their experiences, not by genetics. I don't believe in genetics much because the world forms more of you than the genetics does. And so I believe that uh, the environment affects you in a way. And so for me, I hated school so much that when I became, uh, you know, and I think what I was going to say, the people I think they're cut out are the ones who are developed to be teachers are the ones who like are the oldest siblings in a family. They tend to like school. They like schooling. And they also, um, they also know how to deal with people. So they usually the older of siblings. So they've learned how to discipline and tell people what to do because they are older or older person. And um, the most perfect example was this kid I had that became a teacher and he was like a natural at it. His, um, uh, I think his dad, no, his mother died and he kind of had to take over the mothering role because dad was still going to work. He had to take over the mothering role, which is both discipline and also caring and support and inspiration and all that. And um, he did that his whole childhood, raising his younger brothers and siblings. So when it became came to teaching, it was like so many of the things are so hard to do as a teacher, which is controlling, guiding, and inspiring. Those are really hard to do, especially with personalities and cultures different from you. It's a lot easier if you've done it in your life. You know, if you've done it, you've been forced to because your mother died and you had to be the disciplinary and then you had to cook food and you had to care for people. So um, those are natural uh, that come into teaching. I think it's a little easier in the beginning. Uh, for me, I just, all I knew is I couldn't stand school. I couldn't stand the way I was taught. And so I taught in, intentionally differently. And 
So it goes back to just my personality not fitting into the mold or the standardized approach of school. School is too standardized and it needs to be more like special ed. You, you have to think of each kid as an individual and try to reach them. After you completed student teaching, did you seek employment at Mount McGill? Never, ever have chosen Mount McGill because I hated the experience. <laughs> I never wanted to go back there, you know. And uh, when I was offered the job, I was going, oh, my God, I don't know if I ever want to go back there. So I hated that place. And so I said, well, it was an offer. And at that time, like, there were 90 applicants to my job and I got lucky and got that job. So I knew that I said, well, let's just go do it. And, um, I did. And, uh, I, it turned out because I taught differently, it, I just, I just created an environment that was not my experience. So it was kind of a liberation actually. It kind of forced me to make sure I, I held true to my, my, you know, you know, God throws things in your life like horrible schooling and teachers that don't care to go, okay, what do you think you need to do? Make learning more active, make it more social, make the kids teach it to you and also care for them as if they're really human beings, not just students. Madigan was a fairly new English teacher when he was recruited for the inaugural AVID program at Mount McGill my freshman year of high school. Basically, I don't know where I was. I was at some kind of conference with the district. And um, these people from, from Helix, the teachers at Helix started a really good AVID program. They don't have it there anymore, but back then they had a really good one. And um, the teachers, they found me, and because I'm young, they they push you into stuff. And for me, I like to accept stuff like that. I just, I tend to say yes and then learn from that. <laughs> and so they just were very convinced themselves. They were very inspired by their experience with Avid. And what Avid was doing was like getting kids who normally wouldn't go to college to go to college, which is exactly what I needed. I really needed that. What were those first few months of Abbott like for you? Well, it was neat. I, it, it fit something in me that uh, I like to coach people into being their better self. And Abbott was a program that was meant for that. And it also, it did something also to liberate me from the typical idea of what a teacher is. And a teacher stands in front of class and barfs out information. And the barf goes inside the brains of a child and it doesn't stay there long and they don't learn. That's my view of real education. So, or the way education was. And what I learned from AVID was, it's not about just delivering information, it's about inspiring kids to want to fucking learn, right? And it's constructing lesson plans that makes kids want to learn, not just sit there passively and accept the barf of the teacher. So, um, it made me realize that teaching has another element. I wasn't just in front of the class. I was behind the class pushing it, you know, and um, I, no one ever told me that you need to ask the kids to try harder and mean it. And then they never told me in ed any education program that if you show genuine concern for their being and their future, it makes a difference to the way they listen to you. No one 
ever, ever, ever said that. As a student in his first AVID class, I can tell you he definitely stood out amongst other teachers. He cared. He listened. He advocated for us on campus. He'd also give you a swift kick in the behind if you needed it. Figuratively, of course. I remember there was a point, I can't remember what point in my teaching, I decided not to sit behind the desk at all. And I would just walk around the room while people are working and I'd ask them how they're doing. And or I'd take them outside and have a Madigan talk, right? So I got to know, even if they're quiet, I got to know who they are. And I'd listen to them and then I'd be able to, like if they were lazy at one point and, uh, you know, they hadn't seen their mom because their mom's in the military and she's gone. I said, what do you think your mom would want to hear from you the next time you call her over there in the Philippines? So I'd be able to use their story to help motivate them. And um, that made all the difference. And this approach was not limited to his AVID classes. His English students benefited as well. What happened was, I was had these intuitions on how to teach, like to make it more active physically, more physically active learning, more social learning where kids would explain things to each other. And uh, basically, it was I started going to brain conferences and I started going, oh, what I've been doing has <laughs> it's backed by neuroscience. Then I really studied that. And then I started looking because it's what I saw as a teacher, that if you make a connection, an emotional, social, personal connection with a student, they do much better. And now the science is showing that's absolutely true. Um, And I think I told you once about how there was an example of how they took somebody who was an expert in teaching knot tying, tying knots, really complicated knots. And they taught a grandmother how to do it. And then she taught her son to do it. And then the, the knot tying expert teacher taught the son a different knot. He remembered the knot tying of his grandmother, like 10 times more than the other guy because of the relationship they have and the expectations she had, his memory was performing differently. The, the hormones and the chemicals in his brain were different. So his brain was more open to remembering, remembering the experience. So uh, there's just all this evidence of that now. So um, that was really exciting because I was in the past, I was just doing what my gut told me, but then I found out in a lot of ways, what my gut was doing was absolutely essential to um, being a great teacher, not just a boring teacher. Madigan taught for over 30 years, impacting the lives of his English and AVID students. He was also instrumental in creating programs for Latino students, learning academic English, and revolutionizing the method for teacher evaluations before deciding to retire. Yeah, so I golf. Um, I'm doing some drawing and painting now, too, which is kind of neat because that's cool. And I do a lot of photography. I do a lot of hiking to keep my brain right. Um, um, I just met and, uh, married a really wonderful woman, uh, who happens to be from Nigeria. She's a special ed teacher. Thank God. So she can understand me. And, um, we do stuff together. I'm trying to actually, before you called, I was trying to figure out because Southwest has these great sales on tickets. I'm trying to figure out where I want to take her. So, um, so trips, um, yeah, that kind of thing. And then every week going to see my, my grandkids. What would be your advice to new teachers? Get dirty, take risks. And when you mess up, fess up 
and do your best because the kids, kids will forgive you if you're genuinely involved. If you're not, and here's the thing people go i just want to make my job easy well it's if you work at it and you struggle over it if you struggle for a while and actually it's difficult if you hang in there uh through the difficulty through the challenge through the crying through the the sense of like i'm a horrible teacher if you hang in there through that through the whole process of that growing moment you become a better teacher and you have to stay at it And then it actually becomes a lighter and lighter and lighter job. The more you go into the deep, difficult stuff, the more you suffer, basically. And that's not a Catholic belief, even though I'm semi-Catholic. Suffering is is necessary to grow. And if you're going to be like it probably still is the case, when I I wrote the book, um, Who's the Teacher Anyway, it was 71% of American public school teachers are white women and you go, you know, as, as idealistic and intelligent they can be, they still don't understand what it's like to grow up as a Latino male. They have no idea and they have to. And so it's their job to learn. And I think it's true of a, a black woman coming in to teach. If she doesn't understand why kids, she needs to learn from their point of view. And you have to do that, and you have to subordinate your sense of ego, and teaching them has to become more important than you are. And it's hard and scary, and you do suffer. You're going to suffer. There's no question, especially if you're going to end up doing it right. But my point is, the more you go through challenging situations, and then don't do the typical human thing. If it was difficult, never get near it again. Don't do that go there again until you get it right. And um, basically what you gain is a lot of skills, but you know what? Like real learning, real learning is not in the classroom. Most of it is uh, just by experience and hanging in there. Your brain changes. You know, they've studied how after you make a big mistake, let's say your wife or husband, you do something really stupid or selfish and it really hurts the relationship or you make a big mistake at school and you yell at a kid or whatever it is, when, anything like that, or you, you, you hurt your relationship with your teenage daughter and it, it lasts for a while, the painful moment. If you hang in there and suffer through it, and you will, you won't sleep, you're gonna be troubling over it. Those nights when you do trouble over something, and you can't sleep, and the next day you trouble over it and you feel all like you're just kind of beat up, that is literally the symptom of your brain working really hard to solve a very complex, multi-level, organic problem. It hurts. It's just a side effect of your brain working really hard. And um, you'll find after a couple of weeks that suddenly you're not suffering anymore. And basically what's happened is your brain has found a new solution. And there's no writing on the wall. You don't see what this is like. It's unlike school. School, you take a test and you see you either got an A, B, or C on the grade. This, you have a new understanding and you're not even totally aware of it. And so what I'll tell teachers is like, around the third year, you're going to start to get this. And there's a lot of layers of getting being a teacher. It's probably like thousand levels. And you suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and you finally start to get it and the suffering starts to go away. And the more you've actually intentionally gone in to help difficult people that you don't understand, that are difficult, having a difficult time, 
the more you do that, the more you learn how to deal with the next one and how to say the right thing to the next one and how to even not say the wrong thing to the next one. And it gets easier and easier. And it's weird. You get paid more the longer you're a teacher and it starts to get easier. And I go, you know what? This is the goal. You're making a lot more money and you're doing a lot less. And it's a lot less painful. And I said, you'll be a, if you want to be a great teacher, it ends up being easier to be a teacher. But to become a great teacher, you have to suffer a long time. If you want to be a regular teacher, you don't have to suffer much, but it's never going to be easy. If you are a new teacher or thinking about becoming one, I recommend you purchase and read Madigan's two books, Who is the Teacher Anyway? and What We Need to Face in American Education. Your students will thank you. And finally, I asked, how would you like your former students and family to remember you? Oh. Hmm. It's a tough question. The first thought I had was that they remember in, remember me in any way they wish that actually will help them out. You know, I had a kid go, I didn't know there were people who really cared. So he's like, his cynicism was broken a little bit by me. And I hope that's still the case, right? Um, I hope, you know, whatever, you know, and kids come up to me going, like Ricky the other day at the golf course told me some stuff I did and I went, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And so, but for him, he said it, but what I was showing them when I was, that I, I loved them and that I took risks for them and I took risks for me to be a better teacher. And I've heard that with teachers too, who, who I helped, they would say, you made me have the courage to try this one idea that I didn't think I'd ever try. So I hope I still have that effect. And with my own kids, I hope the same thing with them. And, you know, now I kind of feel like sometimes I, I was so involved in school and avid that I wasn't around them as much as I should have been. That's the, that's kind of the regret thing I'm going through now, but I'm, I'm just doing all I can to show them now that, you know, I'm here more for them. Of course, they need me less now, but I still do my best in that area. And that you never give up, man. I, I don't, I hope I teach that, that you never, ever give up. You just don't. That is all the questions that I had. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this with me. No, I enjoyed it. And I, I'll do anything for my daughter. And thank you for listening. And I hope you join me for the next conversation. Like and follow at Generations to Remember on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with me. And if there's an amazing person in your life that you believe has some pearls of wisdom to share, email me at shakira.ray at generationstoremember.com. I'd love to meet them. Until next time.